So um, I, I wonder how many of you have had that awkward experience of looking for your, either your glasses or your sunglasses, and you're like looking all over the house for them, and you're try, trying to find them, you need to get out the door, right? Only to discover that they were on your head the whole time. Has that happened to anybody? Um, the other one that happens occasionally is you're looking for your keys. This happens to me. You're looking for your keys. And like the, you're like, you're in a rush. You got to get out the door. And so you're just scrambling through the house to find the keys. And then you discover they're actually like in your, they're literally in your hand or they're in your pocket, right? The worst case of this for me happened a while back where I was, I was arranging a meeting with someone and I was on the phone talking to them. I was on the phone talking to them, all right? And uh, so I'm on the phone and I'm talking and we're trying to get a date to meet and we're trying to schedule it. And I literally said into the phone, hold on a second. I need to find my phone because I want to put this in my calendar right now. And there's just like a silence on the other, on the other end of the line. And I'm like shuffling around like, right? And then it like kind of hit me all at once, right? So, so we've had this experience of like the thing that we were looking for was there all the time, right? Um, I was studying this week. I was studying because we're, in, we're studying Bathsheba. Today is Bathsheba's story. Man, whew, this series has been intense, right? Um, so I've been studying the life of Bathsheba. And my wife can tell you because I'm, I'm like reading it over and over. I'm studying, I'm looking at the commentaries, I'm doing all this. And I kept having this question like, where is God in this woman's story? Right? This, the story of Bathsheba is, a, is, a, is a, a tragic story in many ways. Bathsheba is taken from her home. She's, she's, she's required, she's coerced into a sexual relationship with the king. Uh, when she becomes pregnant from this, from this, uh, from this you know, adulterous, coercive sexual relationship, um, uh, the king finds out and then has her husband murdered. Um, by the way, her husband, her dad, and her father worked for the king. Like, this, this was a person who was totally vulnerable to the power of, the, of this person uh, over them. And then the baby that was born of that, um, of that affair died. So, like, you're, you, you know, you open the book and you're reading the book. And, in fact, I almost titled the sermon. My, my working title was, Where is God when you need him most? That was my working title. And I kept, I'm like, man, that's a really depressing, I mean, this is, this is a hard series, but that's a really depressing sermon title. But that's how I was feeling when I was reading through this, this scripture and trying to study for the scripture. I know that some of you have probably asked that question, though. Like, where was God when I needed him most? Some of you are not asking that question right now because right now things are kind of gravy. You're going, okay, things are okay. Some of you, right? But some of you are literally either entering into a period, coming out of a period, or right in the middle of a period where you're saying, where is God when I needed him most? Where is God? I've, I've spoken to people in the last few months whose relationships are just frayed and frazzled and really, really tenuous, holding by a thread. And they're asking that question. Where is God in the midst of this relationship? I've talked to people who's, who, who, are, who are estranged from their parents or from their children. And the, 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 it's, it's conflict, it's pain, it's heartbreak. And you can, you can ask that, you can be tempted to ask that question, where is God in the midst of this? Where is God when I needed him most? 
There are folks in our church who have received diagnoses that are not promising, that are very, very frightening. And in those moments, you can ask, where, where is God when I need it the most, right? If you've never been in a situation like that, can I just pastorally care for your soul and say you probably will be at some point? At some point, you're going to be in a circumstance where you're looking around going, where is God in this story? I just don't see God in this story. Where is he? So as I'm studying this week, I'm, that's the question I'm asking about that story. I'm like, I don't see God in here, right? But what I want to convey to you today, because I want you to discover what I discovered. I want to, I'm going to try to bring you on a journey, the journey that I went on this week. Because what I want you to discover is what I discovered, is that after, after I began to review it over and over, I discovered that God was there all the time. So today I'm going to title this sermon, He Was There All the Time. I'm going to just encourage you and let you know, God is with you right now in the midst of whatever pain, heartbreak you're going through, whatever discomfort, whatever abuse, whatever relational fracture, whatever diagnosis, whatever pain, whatever you're in, God is with you right now and he's been with you all the time. He's been with you all the time. For those of you who are just catching up with where we are in this series, we're in a series called A Picture Perfect Christmas. And what we've been doing is we've been looking through the genealogy of Jesus. Because what we would expect, what I would expect, is that when the Bible tells the story of Jesus, he gives the picture perfect version of it, right? Everything's glossy, everything's bright, everything's glowing. And a lot of times our songs do that, and our movies do that, and we do that with our own life, and we, we filter our Instagram pictures, and we, like, we make ourselves like airbrushed versions of ourselves, and we try, to, we try to portray this picture perfect version of our life, right? But what we see in the scriptures is that they don't do that. Like they go out of their way, and in the book of Matthew, they go out of their way to reveal all the brokenness, all the pain, all the heartache, all the difficulty, all the shame, all of the, like, the stuff that you just don't even talk about. Like, and they just raise it right up to the surface and go, God was with you in the midst of that. That's the picture of, of Christmas that, that we get from the scripture. We get a picture of a broken world into which a perfect God enters. A perfect God comes to redeem the brokenness, right? That's the incarnation. And so today we're looking, we, we looked at a woman named Tamar. That was a few weeks ago very messed up circumstances in, into which she found herself, right? Um, and then we went to, uh, to Rahab, very, very difficult circumstances there. Then we went to Ruth. Ruth's story opens up with pain and so sorrow and loss and the death of a husband, and it's just like brokenness, right? And today we, we're, we're diving into uh, Bathsheba, and I find it fascinating the way Bathsheba's introduced in the genealogy of Jesus, right? Because here's, here's how she's introduced in Matthew 1, chapter 6. It says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Like, you know, the writer could have just said Bathsheba. Or the writer could have left her out altogether, right? But you don't have to use the most, like, the most uncomfortable detail of her life to describe her. But that's what Matthew does. Matthew says, oh, by the way, Solomon, the great, 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 great grandfather, and, 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 and uh, Bathsheba, the great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus, right? Bathsheba was originally Uriah's wife, just so everybody knows that, right? So, they, so the writer is like saying, look, I'm gonna, we're going to go into this story. If you, don't, if you don't know the story, the story of Bathsheba, I'll summarize it for you. I'm not going to read the whole thing. 
this, the, I'll summarize it for you, right? It's a story of, of the abuse of power over a vulnerable woman who had um, very little um, agency in this matter, right? So in the story, we, it starts with, uh, with King David, and, it, and the, the writer just like, he's, he's throwing King David under the bus right from the get-go. He says, in the springtime, when kings are supposed to go out to war, you know, uh, David was strolling around on his roof, right? So David had sent all of his men out to battle to fight for him, um, and he's hanging around, just lounging around the palace, right? One night he gets bored. He goes up onto the roof of the palace. He's strolling around, and he happens to notice, because his house is above everybody else's house. His palace is way up here. He happens to look down, and he sees a woman bathing. A lot of people get this story a little bit confused, because a lot of people think Bathsheba was bathing on her roof. Like, they imply in some way that, you know, she was uh, complicit in what, what was happening with David. That's not what the story says. It doesn't actually say Bathsheba was on her roof. It says David was on his roof. She might have been in her house, right? Probably was. So we see David looking in, sees a woman bathing. And not only is she bathing, but she's taking a... This is a ritual purification. This is a monthly, uh, obligatory, spiritual, religious rite that she is doing. Um, at the end of her menstrual cycle, she, they, she was required to take a bath. And so David is up on the roof, and he's watching this woman bathe, like a very private moment, watches this woman bathe. He sends his guards to go get her. They go get her. Like I told you, her husband works for him. Her dad works for him. Her grandfather works for him. Everybody in the family is obligated to David, right? There's no, there's no, uh, there's no consensual power here, right? So you've got this woman who is being brought into, into David's court, um, and, and the scripture says that David slept with her, and she became pregnant. When she became pregnant, uh, if you don't know the story, you can go back and read it. He, I, I won't tell you all the details, but long story short, he had her husband killed. Her husband was one of his mighty warriors. Her husband worked for David. Her, her husband was on the front lines of battle in that moment, fighting, risking his life to protect David and the, and the, and the, and the country of Israel. So David's, David's actions here are horrifying. And when you read this story, right, you're just reading this story going, I don't see God in this. I see a woman who is getting like completely, completely mistreated and abused in this moment. I don't see God in this, right? So, so as I'm reading, I kept going over and over. I'm like, where is God in this story? And then I discovered something that I have never seen. I don't know if you've seen it. I don't, I don't know that I, I haven't heard people talk about this or preach about this. But what I suddenly realized in the story, because I'm focusing on David and Bathsheba, right? The whole time, David and Bathsheba. But there's a third character in the story that gets an honorable mention, but he's kind of a cameo appearance. When you first read him, his name is Nathan the prophet. Nathan the prophet is a man of God. Nathan the prophet is a man who speaks truth. Nathan the prophet is a man who's not afraid of the king because he serves a greater king. Okay? Every time that Bathsheba is brought up in this story and every time there's a pivotal moment in her life, guess who shows up? Nathan the prophet shows up. I went back through it. I don't, I'm talking about one time or two times. I'm talking about every time something happens to Bathsheba, suddenly it says, then the Lord sent Nathan the prophet. Nathan the prophet are the glasses on Bathsheba's head. Nathan the prophet are the keys in Bathsheba's hand. 
Nathan the prophet is the phone on Bathsheba's ear. It turns out that God was there all the time. God was there all through every pain, every heartache, every abuse, every circumstance that she faced. God was, he just kept showing up. I'm going to walk you through it this morning. Is that cool? You guys want to watch this? Okay. I want you to get this because I want you to know that sometimes when you're looking around going, where is God? If you look a little deeper, you might find that God was there all the time. The scripture says this. Uh, right after all of these terrible things happened, right? To, 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 to Bathsheba. Taken into David's court. Uh, it's really clear. Well, it's really clear from Nathan who's at fault. Uh, all, all, all of these bad things happen. Um, the scripture says this, uh, 2 Samuel 12, 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Here comes God saying, okay, I saw what you did, right? And if you don't know what Nathan, what Nathan said to David, I'll give you the quick summary and then I'm going to read you a little bit. Nathan comes to David and he says, hey, David, I want to tell you a little story. He says, there was a rich man, there's a rich man and a poor man in your kingdom. The rich man in your kingdom has a lot of sheep and cattle and he's got all, everything he wants. There's a poor man in your kingdom who has one little baby ewe lamb, just a little tiny lamb, right? And the, the, the poor man in your kingdom loves this lamb, raised, has raised this lamb as like one of his own, plays with the children, the lamb eats from uh, his plate, drinks from his cup, the lamb even sleeps in his bed. The, this guy just loves this, this lamb. He says the rich guy came along and was getting ready to throw a feast for a friend and had all of these sheep, he could have, done, he could have killed any of his sheep for, for, for dinner, but he goes over to the poor man, he takes the poor man's sheep, he slaughters that sheep, and he eats that, that little baby ewe lamb that this man loves so much. And David is like, who is this guy, right? We're going to take, and, and David literally issues uh, uh, an executive order saying, this guy's dead. Take him out. I don't want this guy in my kingdom. That kind of injustice is not allowed here. And you know what Nathan says, right? Some of you know the story. Nathan goes, you are the man. That's you. And then Nathan says this. Just let me, just soak this in. I know this is Christmas. But Nathan says, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite and the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me, says the Lord, took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you, David. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. I mean, that's some judgment. That's some judgment. David is sitting there taking this from Nathan. And then the scripture in verse 13 says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. God does not always prevent injustice, but God's justice always prevails. I want you to get this. God's not going to prevent every unjust action that happens in your life. That's not, what, that's not how he operates, right? Because, he, because of the fall, because of the broken nature of human beings, that we're in an in, unjust world, an unjust world, right? And God's not stepping in, blocking all of the injustice. But God is saying to you and me today, God's justice is going to prevail. God's justice will prevail. God was there all the time. God didn't stop the injustice from happening to Bathsheba. But God brought Nathan in to say, just so you know, justice will prevail. I had a, um, I'm going to lighten it up just a minute here, okay. I, I had a, many years ago, I got a, um, 
one of those uh, red light camera tickets, you know, from going through a red light. Anybody ever gotten one of those? Okay, good. Um, I don't think they're allowed to do those in Missouri anymore. I'm not sure. I need to talk to legal counsel. I don't know. But anyway, um, this is years ago. I was in L.A. It was, it was Halloween night, and it was raining, and my friends and I were all in costume. And, <laughs> and um, so I'm just driving down, down the street, and uh, it was the end of the party, and so I'm out driving, and it's raining, and it's Halloween, and uh, I'm coming up on this red light, but, well, it's yellow, but it's getting ready to turn red. Anyway, I go through it, bang, I saw the flash. I thought, eh, you know, we'll see. And then a few months, or like a month later, or a couple weeks later, a ticket shows up in the mail. And of course, I'm smiling and just driving with my, I was dressed like a train conductor that year for some reason. I don't know how I came up with that. But um, so, so everybody in the car is like laughing and there's just, you know. And so I thought, but you know what? I don't need, I shouldn't have to pay this ticket because I had a good defense to myself. So I said, I'm going to go defend myself. So I take my ticket to the court and I go stand before the judge and I said, judge, I'm going to give you two reasons why I'm pleading not guilty to this ticket. I'm going to give you two reasons. He was like, fire away, fire away, Mr. Train Conductor running red lights. So, so I said, number one, I was the designated driver that night. So I just want you to know that my friends had been drinking, but I was the designated driver. I said, I'll drive. So just so you know, a little background about me, I was the designated driver. I don't know, I felt like that was going to land a little more, with a little more oomph, right? So he's just kind of listening. I said, the second thing is this, it was raining that night. And so um, as I was approaching, I, I, I made a decision based on safety, judge. I knew that if I hit the brakes, you know, I could spin out, something bad could happen. So I just felt like I looked around, I just had to move right through there, right? But that was the safe thing to do. So those are the two reasons I believe this ticket should be waived. And I felt pretty proud of my, 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 my judicial skills in that moment, right? You know what the judge said? Because the judge had not, this wasn't his first rodeo. He said, he said, number one, uh, you were the designated driver. Congratulations. He's like, so basically, you're saying you weren't also intoxicated while you were driving. Good for you, because that would have actually been an additional ticket, right? So I can't waive the ticket just because you were not drunk, okay, following the law. Secondly, he says, when it's wet, you should drive slower so that you don't have to run red lights. That's kind of like what you're supposed to do, right? Therefore, you can head out to the clerk and pay your ticket. Thanks for coming in. It's been great, right? Here was, the, here was the reality, right? Afterwards, I, sat, I mean, I listened to this guy, and I was like, he's 100% right. Like, he is fundamentally right, right? He was a good judge. He brought justice into that moment. He didn't prevent me from running through the red light, but at the end of the day, justice prevailed. I was down at the clerk paying my $50 or whatever it was back in those days, right? Instead of $800. But here, here, here's the reality. In your life, there are going to be experiences of injustice where you, where you are the recipient and where you are the perpetrator. I'm just telling you, it's going to happen because all of our hearts are messed up and broken. And God says, look, I just want you to know I'm the judge. And I don't always step in and prevent injustice, but I'm always there and my justice will always prevail. Here's what the scripture says. Listen to this, Romans 12, 19. I'm going to run through these quick. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. 
2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us, the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Revelation 19.11.12, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True, with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. God is saying, I just want you to know, I'm there as a righteous judge. I'm showing up as a righteous judge. Uh, Bathsheba, you're not alone. I saw the injustice that was perpetrated against you. Children of Israel, down in Egypt, I see the injustice that is being perpetrated against I am a righteous judge, and ultimately my justice will prevail. God is with you in the midst of that. Wherever you, if somebody's been experiencing something that, that you've been mistreated, you've been maligned, you've been hurt, you've been harmed, just know God's justice will prevail. He doesn't always prevent the pain, but he's always present in the pain. So, so passage of time. David repents, David fasts and prays, doesn't eat, you know, and, and really fully recognizes his, his crime. Now Bathsheba is completely uh, in, in his court, okay? So they're, 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 she, he's in, she's part of his harem. Um, they're married now. And the scripture says uh, in, in verse 24 um, that, they, that they were together and that uh, Bathsheba became pregnant again. She gave birth to a son, verse 24, 25, and they named him Solomon. Now, this is fascinating because the word Solomon, if you look it up, what it means is to make whole or to make complete, right? Something that is lost is to be restored. That's what that name means. Guess who shows up at the birth of Solomon? Here comes Nathan. The Lord loved uh, Solomon, it says, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan, the prophet, saying his actual name is Jedidiah. I know you're calling him Solomon, but you know what God calls him? God calls him Jedidiah. Jedidiah means beloved of God. Beloved of God. Here's my point, if you want to take, take a note. Your parents give you a name, but God gives you an identity. People, you're, you're going to have names for yourself. You're going to get names from other people. I think David and Bathsheba, I think David said, I'm going to call him Solomon because I need to be made whole. I need to be made complete. I need to be restored, right? That's what David needed from Solomon. But you know what God wanted Solomon to know? You're a beloved child of God, right? You're going to face all kinds of circumstances. You're going to face all kinds of pressures in David's court. There's all kinds of people vying for power. There's all kinds of expectations that's going to be put on you. But I just want you to know, at the very base of who you are, you're my beloved child. You are my beloved. That's who you are. Your parents gave you a name. I'm going to give you an identity. Um, we, have, we support some, uh, a lot of mental health counselors at One Family Church, and you may have met them. We support Avenues Counseling. We support Crossroads Counseling. We got a lot of counselors. I'm a huge advocate for that. One of the, um, one of the strategies um, that the mental health counselors use, a technique, is what they call cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. Some of you all know what that is. But it's fascinating because, um, let, let me kind of just show you what it is. Cognitive behavioral therapy um, presumes, and you can put that next slide up, um, presumes that, that our thoughts... Watch this, okay? Our thoughts impact um, our feelings. Okay? Our thoughts create our feelings. Our feelings then create our behavior, 
and then our behavior reinforces our thoughts. So what, so what, they, what they're teaching in this methodology is that what you think matters. What you think about yourself matters. What you're telling yourself about yourself matters. How you identify yourself in your own mind, it, it matters because it's going to impact your feelings, and then your feelings impact your behavior, and then your behavior impacts and reinforces your thoughts. Let me give you an example. I spoke to someone a while back, a man who came to me who was struggling in his marriage and with his family. And he said to me, and he said these words, he said, I am a failure as a father and as a husband. I am a failure as a father and as a husband. That was a thought. That's how he was identifying himself. I am a failure as a father and as a husband. And as a result of that thought, it was impacting his emotions. He was experiencing anxiety. He was experiencing depression. He was experiencing anger in a, in a, in a pretty significant way. So his thoughts impacted his emotions. Because he was anxious and angry and depressed, he was spending more time at the office and away from his family. He was drinking more than he normally would or, or normally should. When he was home, he was lethargic. He was um, like kind of unapproachable, right? He was somebody you couldn't really get through to at home. Those behaviors, drinking too much, staying at the office, and being uh, unavailable to your family, are behaviors that reinforced his thought. I am a failure as a husband and as a father, right? So this man was on a cycle. Are you with me this morning? Are you tracking with it? He was on a cycle, and so I said, can I just pause you for a minute? Because I want to go back to the first thing you said, that I'm a failure as a husband and as a father. And I want to go, I know you. Now, you're not, you're not a perfect husband, and you're not a perfect father, but I've seen the way you love your kids. I've seen the way you support and love your wife. I've seen some things that you have done that would undermine the fact that you are stating. That's not a true fact about you. There might be a, a version of that fact that is true, right? Like, man, I'm struggling in my role as a father and as a husband. That might be true. It might be true that uh, you're having difficulty relating to your wife and you're having difficulty connecting with your kids. That might be true. But for, but for you to identify yourself as a failure, as a husband, and a father, that's not, that's not true, right? You see, God says, God says things like, I want you to know who you are. I want you to know first and foremost. Let me get to your thought life first because you are a beloved child of God. Now let's work off of that premise. Let, let, let your emotions be impacted by God saying, you're Jedediah, you're not just Solomon. You're not trying to make somebody else whole. You are whole because you are a beloved child of mine, right? Look, look, what, look what it says in 1 John 1, 3. It says this. It says this. 1 John 3, 1. See what, God, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. It's talking about us. Because that is what we are. That is what we are. God's saying, look, you can name him, but I'm claiming him. Are you with me this morning? God is saying to somebody today, I am with you. I know that the way you are narrating your life and characterizing yourself and the thoughts that you are having about yourself tell you a different story. I'm giving you the reality. The reality is I'm here with you, I'm present, I'm showing up, and I am your beloved father, and that's who you are. You are my beloved child, period, end of story. Now let's work off of that. So Nathan's showing up again, right? Bathsheba is, is experiencing all of this, and God just keeps showing up. They grow up. Solomon grows up. He gets to be about 20 years old. 
And David is, by this time, David is getting old. David is getting long in the tooth. David is, is not paying attention to what's going on. And one of his sons, a son named uh, Adonijah, says, you know what? I feel like it's time for me to be king. I feel like it's time for me to take the throne. So the scripture says that Adonijah, in 1 Kings 1.5, Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, one of David's other wives, uh, Adonijah put himself forward and said, I will be king. So Adonijah got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. Adonijah, in verse 9, says, Then sacrificed sheep, cattle, fattened calves at the stone of Zahilath near Enregal. Uh, he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite... Who did he not invite? He did not invite Nathan, the prophet, and he did not invite his brother Solomon. <laughs> right? Because God had a plan for Solomon. He didn't have the same plan for Adonijah. God said, I'm, Adonijah said, I'm going to do my own plan. I'm not going to invite Nathan, the prophet, and I'm definitely not going to invite Solomon. So when this happens, right, when one son takes the throne, the thing that they would do in this era was they would make sure that there were no other competitors for the throne. And the way they would do that is they would eliminate all other competitors for the throne. You see what I'm saying? Solomon and Bathsheba were about to be killed. They were about to be executed by Adonijah. Their story was about to end. Right? Guess who shows up? <laughs> Nathan is my new hero. I love Nathan. The scripture says this in verse 11. Then Nathan, Nathan shows up. Nathan shows up, asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, have you heard, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggath, has become king and our own Lord David knows nothing about it? Now then, he says, let me advise you. If the, if, if, <laughs> would you allow the word of God to advise you on what you should do and give you some guidance and clarity and some direction and some advice and some input on what you should do? Let me advise you, Nathan says, how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go into King David and say to him, my Lord, the king, did you not swear to me, your servant? Surely Solomon, your son, my, my, my son, your son shall be king after me. And will he not sit on the throne? Why then, David, this is what Nathan is telling Bathsheba to tell David, why then has Adonijah become king? And then Nathan says this, while you're in there talking to him, then I will come in and I'm going to add my word to your word. Oh, Nathan is so good, you guys. So, so Bathsheba goes into King David and she goes, hey, did you know that Adonijah just crowned himself king? Did you know that he took all the chariots? Did you know that he got all a bunch of your uh, military personnel? Do you know that he just took over as king, but he didn't inv invite Solomon and he didn't invite Nathan? Did you, know that was, did you know that was happening? Because you told me that Solomon was going to be the next king. Remember how you promised to the Lord that Solomon was going to be the next king? So Bathsheba's in there saying this to David. And then Nathan, <laughs> then Nathan comes in and Nathan doubles down and says, Hey, did you know that Adonijah just crowned himself king? You got to read the script. It's just fascinating. Did you know that Adonijah, and he comes in and he, and he doubles down on what, on what she said. And after Nathan and Bathsheba are done with David, David says uh, in verse 30, 32, take your Lord's servants with you and have Solomon, my son, mount my own mule and take him down to Gihon. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon. You see, God was there all the time. God kept showing up 
all the time. Throughout this story, God shows up as righteous judge when Bathsheba needs a righteous judge. When Solomon needs a loving father, God shows up as a loving father and says, your name's Jedediah. That's your real name. That's your identity. You are beloved by God. When Solomon and Bathsheba are in trouble, God shows up as a wise counselor and says, let me advise you on the direction you should go. Can I just tell you, as now that, now that I have thoroughly understood and, and grasped this story, I realize that God was there all the time. God was there every single minute of her life. In the end, when God, God comes and says, I'm gonna, Nathan comes and says, let me advise you. Here's, what, here's the last point that I want to ask you or say to you. The life you achieve is shaped by the voices you believe. Some of you may be asking, where is God right now, right? Where is God in my life right now? Can I just tell you, can I just tell you that the glasses are on, are on your head right now? Like what we're reading, this scripture, the word of God, the people that you're surrounded by, God's with you right now. He's with you as a righteous judge. He's with you as a loving father. And he's with you as trusted advisors. When I, when I hit a point in my life in my 20s where my life was just jacked up completely, right? And it wasn't because I was being mistreated. It was all self-inflicted, mostly self-inflicted wounds, right? Just messed up. And the consequences and, and things that, it was just messed up. My life was messed up. And I got, finally, I got to a point where I said, I need help. And I reached out to a counselor. I had never, like my, the way I grew up, people didn't, there were no counselors. You didn't call a, you know, you didn't call a counselor or a psychologist or a therapist. Like that seemed, cra- that's for crazy people, right? You know? But I had enough friends going, you know, you should probably talk to somebody. So finally I called a counselor. And man, it, it began to change my life because I had some wise counsel. This, this is a, a Christian woman that began to speak some truth into my life. And then, I, and then I said, you know what? There's a friend of my dad's who's a pastor who always has seemed to show, you know, kindness and, and, and love towards me even when I was being mean and ugly. So I called him. I said, man, I, I could use some input. I could use some advice. And then a little bit after that, I called my Uncle Norman Rutson, who's been a pastor for like 100 years. Seriously, the guy has been, a, he's still, still cranking. And, and I said, man, I, I just need some input in my life. And pretty soon, you, I was surrounded by wise counselors. I was surrounded by voices that had been there the whole time. They were just the glasses on my head. They were just the keys in my hand. They were just the, the phone up to my ear that had been there the whole time that I had not recognized. God was with me the whole time. God is with you right now, right here, today. Here's my two questions and I'm going to close. Where is God showing up in your life through other people? right now. You have to look deeply because you're going to read the story 10 times before you realize God was there all the time. You're going to keep thinking, where is God in the midst of this? Keep looking around. Where is God showing up in your life through other people? And now here's where I really want to take it. Okay? Here's where I really want to take it. I'm going to close. Where is God showing up through you for other people? Where are you, Nathan, for somebody else? Where are you, the word of God, in somebody else's life? Right? Last two things. Scripture, Matthew 1, 23. This is what Christmas is about. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with 
us. Do you realize this is what Christmas is? You can come help me close. This is what Christmas is. Christmas is God coming into flesh to become one of us into the brokenness of who we are, into the, the chaos and the, uh, and the pain, the, the, the fear, the, coming in to earth as one of us wrapped in flesh. That's called the incarnation. God coming and being incarnate in man. God becoming one of us, right? God coming into flesh. But then he takes it one step further in 1 Corinthians 12, 27. It says, now you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. Do you understand how that story works? God comes from heaven to earth and says, I want, I want you to receive me and receive what I have for you. And after we have received what God has for us, he says, now you are the body of Christ. Now I want you to not only receive what I have for you, but I want you to pour out what I have given you. I want you to be the Nathan. I want you to be the embodiment. I want you to be Christ in skin for somebody else. That's what he's calling us to be. We receive Jesus because we need him. We need him in the messed up brokenness of our life. But then we get to turn around and we get to be him. Not any single one of us. Collectively, we get to be him for somebody else. And when we do that, when we're actually... We're, we are the perfect picture of Christmas. We're Tamar and Ruth and Rahab and Bathsheba. That's us. And God's saying, I'm coming into your life, and I've been there the whole time, and I'm going to keep showing up, and I'm going to use you to become me on this planet. I believe God can, can not only change and transform our lives and our church. I believe he can transform a city through a group of people who will say, I'm going to receive Jesus and then I'm going to go be Christ. I'm going to go be the body of Christ for somebody else. To a group of people who say, man, I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to have perfect circumstances. I don't have to have everything lined up and squared away, right? Because that's not what Christmas is. All I have to be is a recipient of a perfect God who's coming into my brokenness. And when I do that, I, you, we become a picture perfect Christmas. Let's pray. Father, you're good. You're so good. Your word is so good. It's so rich. God, I pray that you would fill us today, Lord, with the power of your spirit break through our own muddled mindset. Help us to see that you have been here all the time. Help us to see that you are right now here with us, in us, working through us. Help us to recognize, Lord God, that we are your people. We, 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 we could be in the genealogy because we are now the body of Christ. You have called us to live out the, the incarnation. You've called us to... Uh, called us to live out your purpose on the planet to be Christ as a community in this city in this nation around this world father I pray for each person here today as we approach Christmas that they would lay aside the anxiety the stress the worry the commercialization all, all of that just lay all that aside God 
and focus on you. Let us be today a picture-perfect Christmas. And let us know that you have been with us all the time. We love you, we praise you, and we honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, 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 amen. I want to invite you as we close today to worship with us in a few different ways. Uh, if, uh, if you're a guest here and um, you've, you've not been here before or, or you've been here for a little while but you, you're not a member yet, um, we'd love to connect with you. You can fill out, uh, there's a connection card right in front of you, um, in the seat in front of you. Take a moment, fill that out. Uh, you will not get spam email from us. You will not get any of that stuff. We want to give you a gift. We have a, a resource called Right Now Media that we'd love to give you. Um, it's a bunch of Bible studies on video-based Bible studies. It's excellent. Um, and uh, we want to give you a subscription to that. It's like Netflix, but with Christian content. Um, if you don't have that, even if you're not a guest, you've been here for 10 years and you don't have that, let us know. Put it on your connection card and, and, and let us know and we'll send you um, a subscription to that. Um, if you need uh, prayer today, uh, our prayer team members are going to be in the side auditorium. You can take communion over there. Somebody will pray with you. Uh, we're here for you. We want to support you during this Christmas season. Um, if you want to uh, participate with us in generosity and giving as the year ends and some of you are beginning to fulfill your beyond commitments and, uh, and, and you want to partner with us as we advance the mission of One Family Church uh, and of, of God's love and the, the gospel through the world, uh, you can partner with us um, online. Uh, I think they'll have baskets on the way out. You're welcome to put your offering in those baskets, or you can uh, just sign up to do it online. Um, but we invite you to worship with us in any or all of these ways. Would you stand with us as we close this morning? And I would just invite you, let's celebrate together. Let's celebrate the incarnation. Let's celebrate Jesus coming in flesh and becoming Christ for us. And then let's celebrate us becoming Christ for the world. Amen. Let's sing.